And last week we saw Peter use a very complex sentence to make a simple point. And his point was that if God has consistently judged the unjust and rescued the righteous, then he will surely do it again in the end. And uh, this week he uses a complex set of illustrations to make another simple point. There, There are at least six illustrations in our passage today, all overlapping and tangled around each other. But the point is simple. If you want to know which one you are, are you unjust or are you righteous? Then a good place to start is to ask, what kind of people are leading me? Who is teaching me? What kind of influences have I put myself under? So let's turn to 2 Peter. And we're in chapter 2. I will have to jump around the passage quite a bit, so you will want it open. It's 2 Peter chapter 2. We'll look briefly also at Numbers as well, and uh, then come back to Peter. So uh, if you're feeling full of zeal this morning, why not turn to them both? 2 Peter 2, verse 1. And uh, this is uh, because it's so complex, we've had to break up one sense unit into three different sermons. So I'll just take us back a couple of weeks to remind us what we're even talking about. He says in verse 1, false prophets also arose among the people. So he's taking us back in our minds before Christ to to Judaism, to the good old days, the old covenant, the Old Testament, when false prophets came into Israel and led them astray. And then Peter brings them in their minds back to then, to the early church, and he says in the same way that these prophets crept into Israel, so too in the early church, teachers have crept in To your congregations too, false teachers are among you. We are all influenced, all led, all taught and trained by someone. So the challenge for us today is to figure out who it is that is teaching us and then why it is that we might fall for what they teach. Now just a couple of caveats before we go on. The accusation, false teacher, this is the nuclear weapon of the theological world and it gets thrown around too much. Uh, just labelling people, false teacher. A false teacher is a specific thing. It is someone who leads you away from the lordship of Christ, denies that, and indeed undermines the authority of Scripture as well. It is someone who tells you, well, there's lots of gods, or Jesus is okay, or there are many ways. We're all climbing different faces of the same mountain. That's false teaching. Or that says, Scripture is, you know, useful, it's interesting, the Word of God is in there somewhere, and our job is to sift through it and pick out the bits we like. That is false. A false teacher is not someone who makes mistakes, because that is every single one of us. No one has taught any theological point perfectly, except for God himself. Second caveat, clearly Peter's focus is on the church. He's talking about people who've come into the church and are teaching within it. But I do think that for many of us today, as we start to apply this passage, have had the pastor-teacher replaced, to some extent, by lots of others. I think our culture has become saturated with advice. We've got all these life coaches, culture of celebrity, and now social media influencers on our screens who are seeking to lead us and teach us spiritual things. And clearly, they are not the focus of Peter, if you look at the Bible carefully. But with this caveat in mind, I think that we can 
Think about them a little bit this morning. Think about those who've come into our lives and we see on our screens that would purport to have authority to teach us and train us in this life. And for every pastor you have preaching to you, you probably have hundreds of other people influencing what you think. So how do we spot them? How do we spot a false influencer? Peter Peter illustrates this uh, six different ways, six common character traits of the false teacher. I'm going to jump around uh, the scriptures, not in the room, that'd be unseemly, but I'm going to jump around a little bit and uh, ask you please to start at the end in verse 17. So first of six character character traits of a false teacher, verse 17. These are waterless springs. So just imagine walking through a desert place and imagine that your water supply has run dry. And then imagine seeing a spring in front of you and rushing towards it only to find that it has dried up. That is an influencer that looks good from afar, but when you get close, you realize they have nothing of substance for you, nothing to refresh. Now, still in verse 17, second character trait of a false influencer, he says, they are mists driven by a storm. I don't know if you drove down the road this, this uh, week, the sort of little early morning mist down in the valley there, just rolling through the lower fields and beautiful kind of scene. Imagine the very thinnest early morning willow-a-wisp kind of fog, and then a wind comes along and just blows it all away. Ephemera. That's what these false teachers are. They have no sticking power. What they'll do is they'll come in and they will feast with you while the going is good, but the minute a storm comes along, they're nowhere to be found. They disappear. And I think you might agree with me that we're in a storm right now. The tail end of COVID is the tail end of a storm. And what we've seen is that our mistiest members and our foggiest friends have been blown away. They're nowhere to be found anymore. What about the ones teaching you? Are they committed to you? Are they all in? Do they share their lives with you? Do they stick around? Do they seek you out when you are low and you have nothing to offer them? Have you ever even met them? Have you met these people on your screens? Would they know you if they fell over you in the street? If not, why do we listen to them? third image, verse 13, kind of working backwards. They revel. They party hard. That's what they do. And they live in luxury, presumably, off of you. Hit that like button. Don't forget to subscribe. Have you just been monetized by them? Are you the product? Are they using you? Fourth image, verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, prolifically promiscuous. That's what they are. And Peter's point is very simple. If they cannot even be faithful to one person, how can you expect them to be faithful to us all? Fifth image. Verse 13, they are blots and blemishes. I want you to picture a stain on a tablecloth at a feast. Our chief feast in the church is the one that's laid out behind me on the Lord's table. That's our feast, the Lord's Supper. 
And the Lord's Supper reminds us that our worship is focused exclusively upon Him. And when you think about everything that the Bible says about the Lord's Supper and about the sacrifice of Christ that this commemorates, the language of stains is all the way through it. Jesus, the spotless lamb, is sacrificed for us so that the crimson stain of our sin can be propitiated. It means blotted up, absorbed, and thrown away, expiated. That means wiped away and made clean. Communion is all about the removal of a blemish. We approach this table of atonement saved from sin. The blot and the blemish, the stain is is wiped away. We approach the table marred by a crimson stain that blemishes us. A spotless lamb has died for us already and has exchanged places with us, drawing that sin upon himself and presenting us in his place as clean. You now approach the judgment throne of God boldly and with confidence because you are righteous by the blood of the Lamb. These false teachers are not teaching that thing. They're teaching that it's still on you, that it's still for you to clean yourself up. And by the way, they happen to be selling the thing that will do the trick. Snake oil salesmen is what they are. You see in the movie The Outlaw Josie Wales, that dude with a bottle of filth. Clint Eastwood spits on him. And it's a great movie. Spit on these false teachers. What a disgrace. They've desacramentalized our worship. And they've profaned that which is intended to purify and is pure. Blots and blemishes at a holy feast. How do they defile it? In the way that every false teacher defiles that which is pure. By taking the attention off of Christ and placing it upon themselves. They can't save you. Sixth image, verse 10. And by the way, uh, there are hundreds of pages written by theologians about verses 10 and 11, which is their way of saying that they don't understand it. Because you get a commentary and it says, Jesus is Lord. And like the commentary says, this means Jesus is Lord. You get a sentence like this, and there's hundreds of pages saying, well, it could mean this. Some other bloke thinks that. And, you know, I'm not quite sure. So I'm going to tell you what I think. And uh, I'm not a false teacher, but... Uh, I might be wrong. Verses 10 and 11. Bold and willful, they, I believe the they is still the false teachers, do not tremble as they blaspheme. That word, obviously, we associate with saying bad things about God, but it can mean to slander anyone. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. I think they're angels, the glorious ones, the shiny ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them. What I think this means is that these false teachers believe that they know best. And they believe it so much that what they do is they even look down on angels. They even look down on those who stand in the very presence of God himself, which is this close to looking down at God. They think they know best. They think they know better even than God. In contrast, verse 11, the angels who are way above these false teachers and surely know how wrong they are would never dream of doing this judgment thing in reverse. The angels would never judge the false teachers because they know the real judge. They stand in the presence of the judge and they know it is not their place to judge. The ultimate mark of a godly teacher 
is that they let God be God. They get off his throne and they submit to him as Lord. Only in 2021 could I say that and brace myself for an email on a Monday morning. Shock, news, just in. Pastor said, God is God. Uh, when I was at university, I had a friend. One night for a laugh in the dark, uh, perhaps infused by some refreshments. Uh, he thought it would be good to go up to the kitchen on the top floor of his apartment block and throw something onto the heads of his friends who were drinking outside below. And before I go on with this illustration, I just want to say that if you are closely related to me, this story is not at all funny. If you are not related to me, then it is. So uh, my friend, he found a commercial cooking pot in the kitchen of his flat. And uh, he put into it every ingredient that he could find in the kitchen. There was uh, barbecue sauce, squeeze it in, mayonnaise, chicken stock, squelch in a canned tuna. You know the one that stinks and makes a noise? That one. Um, cereal, put it all into the pot, and he was stirring it up like this. Uh, strange substances from foreign lands went into the mix. Marmite, treacle, and HP sauce. If you're not familiar with such things, just know this. About 80% of British things are brown. <laughs> you mix not just things we eat. He, he mixed it up in this huge pot to throw onto his friends, because that's funny, right? And uh, he said, as he approached the window, opened up the great window, a huge gust of wind off the Atlantic just hit him in the face, and he stumbled with the heavy pot, and instead of tipping it onto them, this cauldron of filth just slowly and agonizingly oozed out of the window and blew all down the side of this beautiful white building from top to bottom. And, uh, it was dark, he says, at this point in the evening, so no one knew. So he did the only logical thing that anyone would do in such circumstances. He fled. And then he blamed someone else. Now, I should add for you, just to paint the picture, that this building was iconic. And uh, it, had, it was brand new. It was a gleaming white tower. It was on full view of a main road. And it had become the, the poster building on the prospectus for the UK's seventh best university. And uh, he said that by... Still going up the table. He said that by dawn's early light, the stain that had been hidden in the darkness was slowly and agonizingly revealed to everyone that came by. He said it was so bad it even made the news. Uh, not the campus news, the real actual human news for grown-ups covered the strange stain. Now, uh, this, is, this is, I'm going to admit, not my best illustration. Uh, but you try finding one that involves a dirty liquid, wind, partying, lust, judgmentalism, and mysterious stains that does not also involve a university student. <laughs> you try it. False influences look good, but they give nothing. They hang around, but they don't stick around. They indulge themselves at your expense. They do not lead worship. They defile it. They do not preach judgment. They provide it. You do not want a prankster for a pastor if the joke is on you. So what motivates a false teacher? We've got to figure out what it is. We've got to get in the skin. What motivates a false teacher? Because if we can 
figure out what is driving them. We can maybe figure out why it is any of us would follow them. What are they after? What makes them tick? At this point, Peter breaks with the images, these six sort of interwoven, powerful pastiches of what a false teacher does, and appeals instead of the, the images, he appeals now to an Old Testament account. Not a story, an account, a thing that really happened in the Old Testament, one they knew well, one we might well have forgotten. But in verse 15, he says to us, they followed the way of Balaam. doesn't matter how you pronounce his name. Balaam, 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 whatever. The son of Baor. They followed this guy. I'll call him Balaam. And that's our first reading from Numbers 22. And if, you, if you've got some energy, then do to please turn to it. I'll run through Numbers 22 as fast as I can. This is arguably one of the craziest accounts in the whole of the Old Testament. And that is a book that contains the creation of the universe out of nothing and a bloke who lives in a fish for three days. So when I say it, I mean it. This is wild. Balaam was a false prophet. He was full of himself. Numbers 22 records for us how one day Israel's enemy, the king of Moab, consulted with Balaam and asked him, to curse the people of God. And Balaam was riding along on his donkey, and the angel of the Lord came to kill him. Get rid of this guy. He's no good. The thing is, although Balaam is, is blissfully unaware of this fire angel ready to get him, the donkey is not. Verse 23. Numbers 22. Verse 23. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside. Now, Balaam, ignorant of what the donkey can see, beats the donkey. And then it happens again, and then it happens again until verse 28 says, The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Not, uh? Talking donkey, which would be the normal thing to say. But angry thinking now. <laughs> Pride has kicked in because you've made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you, donkey. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam says, No. You see, he's being outreasoned by a donkey at this point. It's hilarious. Verse 31. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. A stupid donkey sees what a brilliant man cannot. Because it's not about the wisdom of man. It's about the revelation of God. False teachers teach the wisdom of man, the stuff they've made up. Pagan wisdom, secular wisdom, their own clever thoughts. Biblical teachers teach God. They let God be God. So Balaam, in this moment, he learns that he cannot curse the people of God. It's a bad idea. They're not going to do that, because he has a close shave with death. But uh, three times the king of Moab, we read, three times the king of Moab comes up to Balaam and says, will you please curse the people of God? And three times Balaam says, no way because the angel thing and the donkey, no, I'm not going to do it. So the king of Moab does something else. Instead of cursing the people of God, comes up with a workaround. 
He befriends the people of God instead. And what he does is he has his people intermarry with the people of God. And slowly, the Israelites fall for this trick. Slowly, they start to worship God alongside the gods of Moab. They syncretize, they mix and mingle the gods of this foreign king with their own god. And then slowly they start to replace God with the gods of this foreign king until they get rid of God altogether and at that point remove themselves from underneath the protection of God. And then disaster comes. And that's all we hear about Balaam. Like he just disappears from the scene. I'm reading this account in bed the other night, thinking, I'll just, I'll just refresh my memory on this. It's like page after page. After, where's Balaam? Like, he's, he's, he's gone. You have to get to chapter 31 until there is one tiny throwaway remark. I don't have it in my notes, but I see Debbie, you're going for it. It's 8 or 14 or 16, I can't remember. But there's a throwaway remark uh, about Balaam. And we find out this bright idea was his. It was Balaam's idea. And what's he thinking? It's like he's thinking like, like God's going to go, ah, oh, man, like I said don't curse them, but I, you know, I didn't put enough in the fine print about the befriending thing, so I, you know, I, guess, I guess I'll just have to let you go. Like God's going to say that. It's, it, you know, I guess I just have to let you get away with it because you know, that wasn't the deal. You know, it's like that kid thing we looked at last week, you know, not touching it, not touching it, not touching it. You know, where's the line? Let me walk right up to the line. What's the rule? Let me work around the rule. Like, we think we're so smart, don't we? God judges Balaam, and he dies. It's like three words. <laughs> Dead. So what motivated Balaam to do it? What on earth made Balaam have this revelation of a fire angel and think, how can I work around that? What was more important to him? What was worth risking his life? If we can figure out what makes him tick, then we might figure out what makes us fall for it too. Peter knows the answer. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, he says, this is Balaam's problem. He loved gain from wrongdoing. The love of money was enough for him to think he could work around God and get away with it. Why do false teachers do it? Peter says, verse 14, because their hearts are trained in greed. They have hearts trained in greed. It's an athletic image for us, this word trained. It means muscle memory. Like they've just thrown this thing so many times that their body knows exactly what to do to make it go exactly where they want it every single time. Time. You've seen a professional athlete warming up on the field before a game and they do this thing, but how do they do it every time? Muscle memory. These false teachers have a muscle memory of greed. And just as greed is, is training them, they are training us. These influencers have been influenced by something, and that is the love of money. They are looking to make a dime off of you. And just as we get ready to judge them and say, man, we've found them out, these bad guys. The warning comes in verse 14. This could be any one of us. Any one of us. They entice unsteady souls. Beautiful language. It means they beguile and bait the trap. Literally. There's uh, a sense that a trap is being laid. They're beguiling as something sirenic. 
about their core. And the trap is sprung on those who are unaffixed to something true. Unsteady souls means uh, not fixed. We're all trained by something, every single one of us. We're all taught by someone. We're all driving under the influence all day long. And I think as, as technology improves, that influence is only going to get stronger. It's only going to get worse. The voices are only going to get slicker and, and, and more frequently spoken right into our heads. So my advice is this. If you are going to seek a light in the darkness this week, instead of a screen, fix your eyes on the lamp instead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, the lamp is your timeless gospel, the good news that you've died and risen for us. And the darkness is the world around us. So I pray, Heavenly Father, that if any of us is, is in the dark this week, is struggling with anything whatsoever, that as we seek some advice, we seek some direction, we seek some training, that we would begin with Scripture and end with Scripture. That you would proclaim the gospel into our hearts. Thank you for the cross and thank you for that blotting away of that which blemishes us by giving us your spotless self. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.